Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and to turn them open to Mark chapter 14. My name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor here and have the privilege of walking through our passage uh, tonight. Mark chapter 14, as you're finding your way there, let me ask you to consider what is the most meaningful meal you have ever had. What's the most meaningful meal that you have shared? Perhaps it was in celebration of your graduation one time, or maybe it was in celebration of a holiday like Christmas, or Thanksgiving, or New Year's, or Maybe it was a meal that you shared with a friend before a long departure or a meal that celebrated somebody's homecoming. What is the most meaningful meal you've ever shared? You see, we as human beings tend to rally around the table when it comes to special occasions. Uh, Meals are oftentimes used in our celebrations. And I think that's kind of wired into us by the God who made us. We were created for the types of things that meals represent. As meals speak to us about our longing for companionship and relationship and community, meals speak to us about our shared dependency upon the God who made us and the God who provides food for us. And, and so we are dependent upon our God and, and we receive what he gives us and we oftentimes leverage it in ways to celebrate different happenings and different events that occur in our lives. But not only are meals used in our celebrations of special occasions, meals are oftentimes used uh, when we feel homesick. Uh, It's funny how a meal has a way of reminding us of where we come from. Uh, Every time I eat fried chicken, I think of my mom. Every time I eat crawfish etouffee, I think of my mom. And any time I have fried chicken or crawfish etouffee anywhere else, I want to go home. Uh, I want want my mom's fried chicken. I want my mom's crawfish etouffee because nothing quite compares to that. If you're someone who likes to travel and maybe you've spent some time cross-culturally, you know that if you spend a lot of time cross-culturally, eventually you will start longing for the food of your homeland. No matter how good the food is in the place that you're visiting, there's something in you that there's a nostalgia within the food that you grew up eating. I remember in college, I spent a few months in London, England, studying abroad. And after about four months of British food, I I started longing for the food of my homeland. I wanted something familiar. And so I took some time looking for something familiar, and I found a pizza hut. Now, uh, in those moments, uh, the food doesn't have to be good food. It just has to be familiar food. And so I found Pizza Hut. I got excited. I ran in. I ordered some pizza. and, And I was really excited about what I was about to eat. But then when the pizza came to when I looked at the slices I was about to devour, I was I was surprised to find that the staple topping for the pizza at Pizza Hut in London wasn't pepperoni. It was corn. And when I saw that, I, I, I lost it. What are you doing, Pizza Hut? Come on, London, get it together, right? Corn on pizza. And so I was sorely disappointed. It didn't get me as excited or it didn't remind me of home as much as I had, as much as I had hoped. Well, I share all that with you because tonight we're stepping into a passage where we're looking at perhaps the most meaningful meal ever shared in the context of human history. A meaningful meal, a a dinner shared between Jesus and his disciples that was on one hand a celebration of a special occasion. It was the Passover meal, the highest and holiest moment on the Jewish calendar. This is the meal that they are sharing, they're celebrating this this, the history of how God had redeemed Israel from Egyptian slavery so many centuries before this moment. But at the same time, they are partaking this meal that, would, that Jesus would use this occasion to kind of redefine it and kind of refocus their attention so that they would come to understand a deeper meaning to this meal, a meaning that had yet to be disclosed because Christ had yet to be crucified. And, 
And then you're going to find towards the end of this dinner that this was a meal intended to prep his disciples for going home. It was a meal that was to zero in on the world that is to come as they consider how dissatisfied they are in the world that they currently live in. And so we're looking at a passage dealing with with what's called the Lord's Supper, and it is one of the more powerful uh, demonstrations and depictions of the gospel and its meaning that you will find in the scriptures. Jesus takes this opportunity to explain to his disciples kind of the reason why he would soon be crucified, the, the meaning of his death. And I love the fact that when Jesus got ready to explain the meaning of his upcoming crucifixion, the moment when he would be nailed to the cross, he didn't pull out a PowerPoint presentation. He didn't drop a bunch of propositions on them like, uh, that were hard to digest or swallow. Instead, he, he gave them a picture of his crucifixion. He gave them a drama of the gospel, and he communicated through story. As we saw in the quote we read earlier, that it is the stories that we surround ourselves with is what ultimately gives shape to our lives. And And Jesus is taking the story of the Exodus that had given shape to the people of Israel for so long, and he's now kind of redefining it, or better yet, showing its ultimate fulfillment and saying, this is the story, the story of my crucifixion, of my resurrection, of my upcoming return. This story is what's going to give shape to your life in the world that is as you move towards the world that is to come. So it's a powerful dynamic, and what you're going to see, uh, jumping right in, is you're going to see a few things that we're going to point out. One is this aspect of Jesus as our host, but then you're also going to see something about Jesus being our feast, and then lastly, you're going to see something about the promise Jesus makes to you and I in light of the crucifixion and his, ult- and his uh, upcoming resurrection and return. Check it out in verse 12. This is What goes down, it says in verse 12, and on the first day of the unleavened bread, this is probably Thursday, this is the day before Jesus would be crucified, and it says on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Where are we going to partake of this meal that we've we've had every year of our lives growing up in in, uh, Judea and Galilee as we've grown up as Jewish children with our families we've shared this meal every single year and now's the time for us to do it again and then Jesus gives them some instructions in verse 13 he sends two of his disciples on ahead and we know from Luke's gospel that these two disciples were Peter and John those are the ones that went to to find the place and he tells them to go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you follow him and wherever he enters say to the master of the house the teacher says where is my guest room where i may eat the passover with my disciples so apparently before this moment jesus made arrangements uh, with someone to host the passover meal for him and his disciples he had set it all up ahead of time and he sends his disciples ahead of them to uh, get it ready But what's unique about that description, he says, when you find a man who's carrying water, uh, the uniqueness of that is that usually, and and in the first century Jewish world, men did not perform that type of task. They weren't commonly carrying jars of water. That was typically a task designated for women. And so Jesus had already set something up to show something up, to show something about what life and the values in the kingdom of God will be like. He's turning values on on our values on their head, and so he... He set up and arranged for the homeowner to be the one who's carrying the water in this moment that the disciples will find, and then they would follow him into the home. 
And all that Jesus tells the disciples to do is done. They go and they find this upper room that is large and is furnished, is prepared for them. And and you get this sense, very similar to what you saw earlier in Mark chapter 11, where Jesus is entering Jerusalem in what's called the triumphal entry. And Jesus gives attention to some details, setting the stage to reveal something about himself to everyone who would observe him and celebrate his entry into the city in that moment. You get the same feeling here and And what you and I consider about this Jesus in this moment is that Jesus is maintaining sovereignty, he's maintaining control, he's maintaining a premeditated, predetermined uh, plan and agenda when he's entering into, or when he's setting up this Passover feast to share with his disciples. Jesus arranged the place for the Passover meal, and he does it in such a way to show that he is still in control the closer he gets to the cross. You see, there's a temptation for you and I to reduce Jesus when we think about the crucifixion of Christ. We think, well, Jesus, sometimes we think, well, Jesus was crucified because he somehow lost control of his life. Or he somehow lost control of his disciples. He couldn't control Judas, so Judas betrayed him and he wound up nailed to a cross. Or he couldn't control the religious establishment, which soon would turn the tables upon him and lead him and turn him over to the Roman officials who would crucify him. Sometimes when we get closer to the cross, we draw the wrong conclusion that Jesus somehow lost control. But what we see in this moment is that Jesus is in complete control. He is in control of the journey to the cross And that is an encouraging thought for you and I as we move into the future, as we step into 2017, knowing that our God was in control of the situations that seem to speak of the fabric of his existence coming unraveled when Christ is betrayed and when Christ is arrested and when Christ is tried and crucified. There's a temptation to think that somehow God has lost control in that moment, but what you see in the subtlety of how Jesus arranged and prepared for the Passover meal, is that he's in control of every step along the way. And if he's willing to be in control even of his own crucifixion, there's a sense in which you and I can trust him to be control, in control of our seemingly crucifixions as well. As we step into the future, we find ourselves struggling or suffering or we find ourselves in situations that seem to be outside of our control or seem to be outside of God's control, knowing that there is a God who did this type of thing, who sent his son to the cross and controlled every step along the way, then you and I can find a God to be trusted even then. Now, I don't know what types of fears marked the end of 2016 in your heart and in your mind. I don't know what type of intimidation you have about the future as you move out of 2016 and into 2017, but I want you to know that whatever awaits you in 2017, your God is big enough, your God is good enough to be trusted every step of the way. This is what Jesus is showing us in this moment, or this is the subtlety of the detail. Jesus prepared the place for the Passover meal. He is in control of the situation of the situation. But then him and his disciples soon enter into the upper room after everything had been prepared there at the end of verse 16. And then in verse 17, we're said, and when it was evening, he came with the 12. They entered the room and they got ready to observe Passover. And not only do you see something about Jesus arranging the place, you see Jesus presiding over the Passover meal. And what's interesting about the, the way that this Passover meal was celebrated every year in a Jewish home is that there was a pattern 
There was a typical way that this meal would unfold each and every year in just about every Jewish home in the first century. Jesus and his disciples likely followed that that same pattern and the same process that was very familiar in the Jewish world. And the process looks something like this. The details are important for us to have in our minds as we think about what Jesus does with the Lord's Supper. As they would enter the room, Jesus and the disciples and everyone else who was in attendance, likely there were more people in the room besides the disciples. They would sit around the table, but don't think Italian Renaissance paintings when you envision the Lord's Supper, when you envision envision the Last Supper. This isn't a bunch of guys sitting, you know, shoulder to shoulder in chairs around a high table. This was a group of Jewish men reclining at table, a table that was lower to the floor. And these men were leaning on their left arm and, and their heads were very close to one another's shoulders. It was a picture of intimacy. It was a picture of community. They were reclining literally at table. And as they would take that position and they would recline at table, the the father of the Jewish household or the oldest male in the room would would then kind of quarterback all the elements. He would lead the meal. In this case, Jesus would occupy that position. Jesus presided over the meal. He would quarterback all the things that would soon take place. And so after they walk in and they recline around table, they begin to partake of the, of, the, of the Passover meal. And it would start with the guy presiding over it, offering up a blessing, praying to God to bless the time, to bless that celebration. And right after that, the, everyone in attendance would partake of the, the first of four cups of wine. Now, you might think four cups of wine, are they, are they going to be able to walk out of the room? But it, this is a long meal over a long period of time. So, so they've got plenty of time to, to let things settle and, and do that. And so they have their first cup of wine together. And right after the first cup of wine, the food would be, pro- be brought out and it would be set up on the table. And every time there were four uh, components to the Passover meal, there was the unleavened bread that would come and be set on the table. There was some bitter herbs that would be brought out and put on the table. There was some uh, stewed fruit that would be brought and put out on the table. And then there would also be the, the main course, which would be a roasted lamb. And after those elements was put out on the table, the youngest person in the room would ask the person presiding over the meal, what does all this mean? And then the person presiding would give the answer. And what he would do is he would tell the Exodus story. He would talk about how Israel used to be enslaved to the Egyptian people and how they were oppressed and how they were afflicted and how they needed redemption, but they could not save themselves. And so they needed the Lord. They needed God to come through for them. And then they would tell the story of how God did just that and how in Exodus chapter 12, God broke through the Egyptian people and he liberated Israel from their bondage. And he did it in a dramatic fashion where where the Lord's judgment would fall upon Egypt. But before that happened, he told the people of Israel that if you want to escape my judgment that's about to fall upon the land and if you want to be redeemed, then you have to do what I say. And that is you need to take a lamb, you need to sacrifice that lamb Take the blood of that lamb and apply it to the doorposts of your home so that when my judgment comes to Israel in that moment, wherever the Lord sees the blood of the lamb applied, whatever home that is, he will pass over that home and and judgment or death would only fall upon those that didn't have the blood. And so Passover went down that way. That was 
how the Israelites were brought out of Egypt because after that moment came and God's judgment fell upon Egypt and all the people who didn't have blood applied to their doorposts, they woke up and they found a dead child in their home. They realized that God was real, that Yahweh was, was one to be feared and Pharaoh should stop playing games with this God. And so Pharaoh did just that. He, at least for a moment, he said, okay, you guys get out of here. Your God is too much for me. So he let the Israelites leave Egypt. And, and from that day forward, the Israelite people would celebrate Passover once a year, every year since then. And so the father, the one presiding over the meal, would explain how this unleavened bread represented the hastiness with which the Israelites fled Egypt. That they wanted to get out so fast and they had to get out in a hurry that they couldn't let the yeast settle and the bread to rise. So they ate unleavened bread. They would explain how the bitter herbs kind of spoke to the affliction that they endured in Egypt and, and the wilderness wanderings where they had this encounter with some bitter water and things like that. And then they would talk about the stewed fruit that were some would say was formed into the, uh, the image of a brick to remind the, Egypt, the Israelites of how their ancestors built bricks for the Egyptian people. That was how they were oppressed in that land. And then he'd get to the, stew, the roasted lamb and he would remind them of how this lamb was sacrificed so that Israel could be redeemed. He would tell that story. And after hearing that story, year in and year out, immediately after telling the story, everybody in the house would then begin to sing a praise, would begin to, they'd bust out in song. They'd sing some praise psalms. They, they would sing three songs in particular. They were taken from Psalm 113, Psalm 114, and Psalm 115. These were known as the Hallel Psalms or the Hallelujah Psalms. And everybody in the household would bust out in song and they would sing together. Do you ever sing with your family? Do you ever sing in your home? Me and my wife and kids are trying to do this now. We're trying to incorporate family worship on a regular basis, and that includes singing. To, and it's hard, it's awkward, but it's worth it. We're learning how to do it. We're not on key. We don't get the words right, but we're trying. And, and I don't think God's really sweating how well we sing in that moment. I think he's pleased just the fact that we would sing to him together as a family. Let, let me encourage you, sing with your families. Sing with your friends. Sing in your homes. Don't just sing in spaces like this. This is what they would do. They would sing that, the, those series of praise psalms, and then they would enjoy that second cup of wine. And after that second cup of wine, then the father, the one presiding over the meal, would stand up, and he would bless the bread. He would break the bread and pass it out. And at that point, they would begin to eat the feast. They would eat the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs and the stewed fruit and the roasted lamb. They would share that meal together, and then they'd have that third cup of wine. And after that third cup of wine, they'd sing more praise songs, uh, more uh, songs taken from the Psalms, and then they would share a fourth cup of wine, and the meal would end every year around midnight. It was an occasion that they didn't want to end. They were having such a good time together. So about midnight, it would end every time. Now, I share that with you because I want you to have that picture in mind because it helps us make sense of what Jesus does in verses 22 down to 20 through 25. So hold those details in your mind. We'll, we'll come back to them. This is where the disciples, this is where Jesus are. In verse 17, they're sitting around the table. They're reclining. They're in the middle of this meal. But then Jesus, yes, he does bring up something that is uncomfortable. He does talk about how he will soon be betrayed. And the moment he brings that up in verse 18, he, or verse 17, 
sorry, verse 18, everyone in the room, the disciples began to be sorrowful and they say to Jesus one after another, is it I? Now, there are not a lot of moments when the disciples can be commended in the gospel of Mark. They, they, they don't really shine too brightly a lot of times in this gospel. This is one of the moments where I think they do. They should be commended. There's something about Passover and their uh, blossoming humility to realize, you know, Jesus is saying somebody's going to betray them. It could be me. Is it me? I, they, they're somehow brought into a better awareness of who they are, and they begin to understand that betrayal isn't beyond them. And there's a word there for us. We, we must be sober-minded in our relationship with Jesus. We must never think that betraying Jesus is ever beyond us. In other words, you are never beyond the pell of temptation. This is why Jesus would teach his disciples to pray a certain way. He said, when you pray, ask God to deliver you from temptation. Depend upon him so that you don't betray him. He would, he would tell his disciples to pray, deliver me from evil and lead me not into temptation. And he's saying, be sober-minded about who you are. I think the disciples are giving us a glimpse of that as they're asking, well, is it I? I'm not beyond, that's not beyond me. I, I, I'm susceptible to that. And so... But notice, they begin to be sorrowful, and they say, is it I, verse 20? And he says to them, well, it, it is one of the twelve, it is one of you. And then he points out one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Verse 21, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. He's going to be crucified. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, I don't know how you hear that. But there's a couple of things that are brought into the play on that verse on one hand yes the sovereign plan of God that the son of man would be crucified that's going to go down but at the same time there is human culpability there is justice that's going to fall upon the one who would betray Jesus there's sovereignty and culpability married together in verse 21 and we always want to have that married together in our understanding of the gospel as we live out our faith but one of the things I've been meditating upon in light of what Jesus is doing here, do you understand? Jesus is being incredibly patient with Judas in this moment. I think by making this statement, Jesus is inviting Judas to come clean. I think he's still, he's showing patience with Judas and either Judas's rebellion is going to be solidified in how he hears Jesus' words and he's going to proceed as planned, which we all know is what happened, or maybe Judas has an opportunity to say, I, I don't want to do that. Look, I, I scheduled something with the religious officials. I, I, want to, I want to pull back on that. I want to repent. I think Jesus is giving Judas an opportunity to repent. He's inviting him to come clean, to confess what he had done. Jesus is exercising patience, the kind of patience we read about in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, when it comes to how God is patient with each and every one of us. This dynamic that the Lord is patient towards us, not wishing that any person should perish, but that everyone should reach repentance. I think Jesus is being patient with Judas in this moment. He doesn't call him by name initially. Now, he could have. He could have walked into the room and said, Judas is going to betray me. And then Peter would have stepped up, maybe put him in a headlock and drove him out of the room. And they could have changed locations. They could have taken precautions to keep Jesus from being arrested later that evening. But he doesn't do it. Instead, he just gives Judas this opportunity. Judas's heart's going to be disclosed as either repentant or unrepentant, either, as either believing or unbelieving. 
And it's a grace that Jesus would warn Judas with those words. It is better for that man if he had not been born than to do what he's going to do. There's grace in that warning. There's grace in that caution. There's grace in that word. The question is, would Judas hear it and would Judas respond to it? And as you and I both know, he doesn't. But what about you? What about you? How, how do you hear Jesus' warnings in the gospel? How do you hear Jesus' teachings in the gospel when he tells you that no person can come to God except through me? How do you hear Jesus when he says at the beginning of the gospel, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must repent and believe in the gospel. You must trust in me. You must have a relationship. How do you hear that? Or are you resigned in your quiet and hidden hostility towards the God who made you so that you don't hear that and heed that? Instead, you're proceeding with your plans to live your life however you've already determined to live. Or are you willing to humble yourself and repent and put your faith in the one who's about to do something remarkable in this moment? Because what goes down after Jesus has this conversation is you begin to show how Jesus is not only the host, but he reveals himself to be the feast of this meal. In verse 22, look at what happens. So he has this exchange. And then verse 22, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until, excuse me, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus does something radically new in that moment. He's about to explain what those pieces mean to a group of disciples who've heard their meaning their entire lives. Only he's going to give a definition and a meaning to those elements that they'd never heard before. One that they did not expect. Jesus has the audacity in this, in this story and in this event to take the holiest time in Israel's, on Israel's calendar. And this holy, holy of, very holy moment for the people of Israel. And he's able to say to the disciples, everything that you've been thinking about, this story of the Exodus, I want you to know it's all about me. It's all about me. And he makes that very clear. And he's going to fulfill the meaning of this Passover meal. And he does it quite explicitly and in no uncertain terms. Listen to what he says in verse 22 again. He takes the bread and he blesses it and breaks it and he passes it out. But then he says, take, this is my body. Now that's unique because all their lives they had heard that the unleavened bread represented Israel's afflictions in Egypt. But here, Jesus is saying it no longer represents your afflictions. It represents my affliction. It represents what I'm about to endure when I go to the cross. And he redefines the bread in that moment. And then he takes the cup. Now understand that I think when he takes the cup in verse 23, this is the third cup, the third cup of wine. That's important for us to understand. It's the third cup of the meal that evening, and we believe that because Luke chapter 22, verse 30 says that after they had eaten, they took the cup. And usually the third cup would come following the meal, and that's what's going down. This is the third cup, and listen to what he says about it. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He's saying this cup represents the blood that I will shed tomorrow. Matthew would make it very explicit. He would say the blood of uh, my blood that will be shed for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what this cup will now represent from this, time, from this moment forward. 
So you have the bread and you have the cup. But then if the lamb is the if the lamb is supposed to be the main course, if that's the most important piece and item on the table, even if it was present, you would think the gospel writers would have called attention to the lamb. You would think that Jesus would have something to say about the lamb. But notice what's absent. Notice what Jesus doesn't touch. Notice what he doesn't address. You're wondering, where's the meat? Well, does that mean Jesus is a vegetarian? The answer to that question is no. Sorry. He doesn't mention the meat because he's a vegetarian. He ate lamb at least once a year his entire life. The reason why he doesn't take up the lamb is because not only has Jesus come to fulfill the meaning of the Passover, Jesus has come to show himself to be the ultimate Passover lamb. There's no lamb on the table and there's no lamb talked about in the conversation because the lamb was sitting there at the table. Jesus is the one that John the Baptist would say earlier, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is who Jesus is. There's no lamb there except for Jesus. We know this also because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, when the church would reflect back on this moment and they would think about the crucifixion of Jesus, they would actually make this statement. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been crucified. Our Passover lamb. This is how they understood who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Now, what that does for us is it deepens our understanding of what his death means. All of a sudden, the Passover lamb becomes the key to unlock the meaning of the crucifixion. And all of a sudden, you and I are prevented from saying something silly like, well, Jesus' death on the cross was an inspiration. Or that Jesus' death on the cross was was some type of object lesson on love. We're not going to say that if we understand him to be the Passover lamb. Because what this does is it speaks to us saying Jesus' death wasn't an inspiration. It wasn't an object lesson. Jesus' death in its deepest sense was substitution. Jesus' death would do for us what the lamb did for Israel in Egypt. So that when God's justice fell upon the land in that moment, it passed over those who applied the blood of the lamb to the doorpost of the home. This is how we are to understand the crucifixion of Christ. He died as a substitute in our place for our sins. Any other understanding of the crucifixion of Christ is a betrayal of Christ. Any other understanding betrays him and belittles him. When Jesus died on the cross, he died as a substitute, the Passover lamb who would take away the sins of the world. This is the Jesus we worship. This is the Jesus we serve and understand the gravity of that. Exodus chapter 12 verse 30 would tell us that on the night of Passover, death hit every home. No home was immune. No home escaped death. The question was, who died? Either a member of the household or the lamb in the household. And when you and I think about the justice of God, understand that his justice is egalitarian. His justice will hit the home, hit every home on this planet And when his justice comes, either it's going to fall directly upon someone or it's going to fall upon his son on the cross. 
This is why the crucifixion of Jesus is so important to us as followers of Jesus. This is why the cross is our hope. The cross is everything. We understand that the world is not divided into good guys and bad guys. The world is divided into repentant and unrepentant, believing and unbelieving. The world is divided between John's and Judas's. Those who apply the blood of the Lamb by trusting in the gospel or those who betray the blood of the Lamb, serving only themselves. John's and Judas's, repentant and unrepentant, believing and unbelieving. This is the call of the gospel. But this is also the hope of the gospel, which brings us to the promise found in verse 25. Now, think about it. Verse 25, truly I say to you, I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. There's still one more cup for them to drink, typically. But they've only had three. When they get to this fourth cup, Jesus says, you're not going to drink that cup until uh, my kingdom is finalized, and until the end. That, that's when you're going to drink this fourth cup. And we're told in verse 26 that everything ended. They went outside, they sang a hymn, and, or they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. They sang that last set of praise songs. Now, I think this is fascinating. And this is, this is the type of thing that should cause our hearts to swell when we think about how God is so detailed in laying out the plan of redemption in the Bible. The Jewish people, every year they celebrated the Passover meal. Every year they shared these four cups of wine. And what happened over time, these four cups of wine began to represent the fourfold promise of redemption that God gives Israel in Exodus chapter 6. When you read Exodus chapter 6, the Lord speaks to them and he says what he's going to do for them. And he lays out a fourfold promise. He tells them, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to free you from slavery. I'm going to redeem you. Those are the three promises that each one of the cups represented up to this point. I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to free you. I'm going to redeem you. But then listen to this fourth promise. The fourth promise, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. I will bring you into a land. That fourth promise spoke to Israel's destination. And the reason I think they do not share in that fourth cup in this moment, and Jesus punts it to the future, is because there's still a destination that we're moving towards. There is a land, a home that is coming. There is a kingdom that will be finalized. And so this fourth cup that they do not share in the Last Supper is still waiting to be partaken of. It's a cup that we will drink together in the kingdom of God. In heaven, we will partake of that cup. And so there's not a fourth cup in Mark chapter 14, but... Or at least it's not the cup that you and I would expect. There is a, another cup shows up. If you drop down to verse 32, you'll find Jesus in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he's praying about uh, going to the cross and what's lying before him. And listen to what he says in verse 36. He makes this prayer, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So there is another cup. But it's not a cup of blessing, is it? It's not a cup of redemption, is it? It's a cup of cursing. It's the cup of wrath. And we'll see that in more detail in a couple of weeks. 
And what you begin to see is something about the promise that we find in the Lord's, in the Lord's Supper. Every time we partake of it, every time we think about where our lives are heading in relationship to Jesus, we begin to discover how Jesus drank a cup of wrath for us on the cross. That's what he did. He drank a cup of wrath for us on the cross so that you and I will one day drink a cup of wine with him in the kingdom of God. In order for you and I to partake of that fourth cup, that cup of blessing, that cup of salvation, to enter the kingdom of God, in order for that to happen, Jesus drank a cup of wrath for us. Again, this is why we say Jesus is our substitute. Jesus took our place. He died for our sins. So the promise before us in light of this passage is that Jesus drank a cup of wrath for us on the cross so that one day you and I will drink a cup of wine with him in the kingdom of God. That's the hope of the gospel. And that's the hope that has been laid out time and time again all throughout the Bible. Let me give you my favorite reference to this. Isaiah chapter 25, you have this description of that day, of that moment when the kingdom of God is consummated, when the new heavens and the new earth is brought to full completion. And we have a feast with Jesus. He hosts us in that moment. Listen to what he says. Isaiah chapter 25, beginning of verse 6. Listen to this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Get this. He will swallow up death forever. When Jesus rose from the grave, that's exactly what he did. He swallowed up death forever. He removed its sting, guaranteeing our victory over death in the future so that we can dwell with him in this land. And then it says, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. There's coming a feast when Christ returns. There's coming a day when we feast with Jesus around the table. Revelation would describe it as the marriage supper of the Lamb, of a moment when Christ returns and we rally around him and we feast together eating fine foods and fine wines. Now, I don't know what, that, what he's gonna serve us, but I know he's gonna host us because that's how good of a God Jesus is. That's the promise we have every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. That's the promise we remind ourselves week in and week out. Now, if you're wondering, well, how do I get in on that promise? How do I, part how do I partake of that meal? Well, it's as simple as you opening your mouth and taking a bite. It's as simple as you taking in Christ. Believing in him, trusting in his crucifixion and his resurrection, putting your faith in Jesus. Now, you might think, well, well, I don't know if I can do that with much strength or much confidence or much certainty. Now, imagine with me back in Egypt when the Israelites were applying the blood of the lamb to the doorposts. There were some families who probably threw it on with great confidence saying, yeah, this is what God said to do. I'm doing it, so we're good. And they probably slept well that night thinking everything's fine for them. But then there were probably some other families in Egypt who did it a little bit more uh, haphazardly or half, uh, a little, with a little more trepidation, maybe a little less certainty, and maybe they were just kind of working through it. 
And you wonder, well, they applied it with a little less faith or a little weaker faith than the other family. Well, was there any difference between their deliverance? There was no, deliver- no difference between their deliverance because the, their deliverance did not depend upon how well they painted the blood across the doorposts. Their deliverance was dependent upon the blood on the doorposts. And when it comes to your deliverance, your redemption, your feasting with Jesus in the kingdom of God, you doing so is not dependent upon how well you exercise faith in Jesus. Your doing so has everything to do with how good of a savior Jesus is and how firm and sufficient his substitute, his blood is for you. So whether you feel like you can do so with a A lot of confidence or little confidence. It doesn't really matter how much confidence. Christ is your Savior. And our deliverance is the same. Regardless of how strong we feel like our faith may be in Christ. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, let me encourage you to put your faith in Jesus, to trust in Him. You don't have to have a perfect faith. You just have to have a present faith. It's not perfection. It's presence. And so Jesus lays out this meal for the disciples. He redefines the Passover meal, and then later the church would take this, and it would become a centerpiece for the church's worship. Paul would tell the church in 1 Corinthians to partake of this meal as often as you gather together. This is why we partake of this meal week in and week out. We come and we partake the Lord's Supper to reflect back on what Jesus has done for us as well as to look forward to the day when Jesus returns and this promise is fulfilled and we drink of the fourth cup of entering into the land or the kingdom of God. Now until that day comes, we do partake of this meal and we do so in, in three ways. We partake of the Lord's Supper every week as a family of faith in declaration of our dependence. Every time you come and you take the bread and you dip it in the cup and You hear the words of the gospel. This is the body of Christ given for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. You are declaring your dependence. You are reminding your heart of where your dependence lies. And your dependence does not lie with you. It lies with Jesus. Not what you do, but what he has done. This meal reminds us of the grace of Jesus, of the power of Jesus, of the deliverance of Jesus. Some weeks you may come with great confidence to the table. Other weeks you might come with great trepidation to the table. Some weeks your faith is strong. Other weeks your faith is weak. Your deliverance is the same. Jesus is Savior. His body, His blood is sufficient for you. Declare your dependence every time you come to the table. But not only do you declare your dependence, you partake of the Lord's Supper in solidarity with your new family. Every week we come to the table, we're reminded of how we are a part of a new family, a new family who's bound together by a better blood. A better blood binds us together. It's not the blood of our moms and dads. It's not the blood of our ancestors. We are bound together by the blood of Christ. And what's beautiful about his blood is that his blood covers all types of people, and he covers all types of people equally, so that we come to the table regardless of our race, gender, our socioeconomic status, regardless of who we are in the world that is, we come to the table equally, affirming our solidarity with one another, saying we are all saved by grace. There is no room for racism at the table. There is no room for elitism at the table. There is no room for division at the table. We come to the table expressing our solidarity with our new family. I love seeing different types of people approaching the table week in and week out, being reminded of just how graceful our God is and how he levels the playing field for everyone involved. We're all sinners safe by grace. But then we partake of the Lord's Supper every week. Also, lastly, in anticipation of our future. 
We partake of this meal in anticipation of our future. Now, when I say that, don't think, well, is this what food's going to be like in heaven? I assure you, it's going to be better than these crackers, and it's going to be better than this cup. It's going to be better. But we partake of this meal, and, and our longing for home begins to quicken because we're reminded, you know, this world is pretty dissatisfying. Life in the world that is isn't really doing it for me. Just like this cracker isn't really doing it for me. This cup isn't really doing it for me, but it's prepping your longing for a day when God will come and he will do it for you. Your home is coming. And when that home comes, you're going to feast. And the best part about it, you're going to feast with Jesus. That's the goal of our salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to see the gospel dramatized week in and week out and to partake of this meal together week in and week out. I pray that you would guard our hearts from becoming so familiar with this routine that it loses its meaning in our hearts. I pray that you would protect us from that, that you would revive and restore within us an understanding of what this meal represents so that as we come to the table over these next few moments, we would declare our dependence. We would think about your grace. We think about what you, Jesus, did for us on the cross. I pray that as we come to the table, we would do so in solidarity with, our, with one another, that we would come together in unity to partake of this meal. And Jesus, as we come to the table, I pray that you would use these elements to awaken our anticipation of the future, that we would long for home, that we would look forward to the day when Christ returns and we feast with him. God, we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.